<laughs> I mean, because yeah. otherwise I'd sound like I was underwater or something. Test. I wanted to say something like, you'd sound like you're underwater, which is what I wish Richie would sound like, because I want to drown him half the time. But that's kind of mean. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Richie. <laughs> How are you today? Hi, Sin. Well, he just threatened to drown me. So I'm a little on edge. You know, you guys know the funny thing? Like, the first part I'm going to talk about is actually mummies from drowning. Oh. Yeah. Oh my god! I predicted content yet again! <gasps> Does anyone still doubt my powers? So, um... Um... Okay, Rich, start this. I'm shy. <laughs> we are going to talk with Cal Santiago, who we spoke to another time about the Valley of Defilement. Did we? Yes, mm-hmm. we did. I'm trying. Yeah, no, there, there was the other Valley Defilement podcast that I lost. Ah, uh, you beat me yeah. to it. I was about to yeah, say. That's, yeah, I'm just, I'm just bringing that up now to clear the air. But it was a different one. On the Valley of Defilement podcast that I didn't lose, we spoke to Cal, and now Cal is back, and we're going to talk about Sky Burial. Yay! Which is a Yay. recurring theme in the Souls games, by which I mean it happens twice. So technically it's recurring. So uh, I actually like prepared other material for mummies as well. But if you guys want to talk about Sky Burial first, and that's, uh, that's totally cool. So that, that way we can like talk about Demon Souls first and then make our way to Durasane. And hopefully this will be less than 20 or 30 minutes long. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's cool. So we can start with yeah, Sky Burials and walk all the way up to the mummies, whatever you'd yep, like. Yep, okay. So Sky Burial, um, you can see it in the Shrine of Storms as well as Hemwick Charnel Lane and also in the design of Eileen the Crow and some of her item descriptions. So basically, sky burial is a burial tradition that's practiced in Tibet, among, also among the uh, Zoroastrians in Persia, and in two Parsi communities in modern India, where the deceased is fed to carrion birds such as vultures or crows. In Tibet, the term used for sky burial is... Um, I'm going to apologize for any Tibetans, because I might butcher these. Rear scale, which means to carry to the mountain. Uh, this is basically because that's where these kinds of practices were carried out. Um, that is to say, in the mountains. And there are other phrases such as Fung Pa Biak Tor, which means to scatter the body to the birds, and Biak Ba, or to give to the birds and the dogs. And in fact, in the Tibetan language, the term sky burial doesn't exist at all. So it's most likely that it was coined through Chinese and Manchu interpreters, and it just sounds more dramatic and cool, I guess. Mm. And um, the reason why this way of body disposal is common is because like, there, there aren't enough resources for regular burial or even cremation. Uh, in Tibet, there's a shortage of arable land, which means that there isn't any space to bury the dead. And there's also a shortage of fuel like lumber, which makes cremation impractical. Um, there were also reports of water burial or the dead basically being thrown into rivers, like what Sin threatened to do to Richie earlier. 
but <laughs> this would contaminate the water source. So uh, in the end, they found that just offering the dead to the birds was a lot more practical. Uh, one moment, someone's sending me messages, so I'm going to ask them to stop right now. So You should ask them politely, like I ask Richie politely. Yeah, I'll threaten to drown them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, there. Sorry about that. It's okay, we don't hear them, so it's fine. Okay. Uh, so where was I? Okay, uh, basically offering the dead bodies to the birds and wild animals was the most ecological way of disposing of them as well. It can seem like primitive and barbaric to outsiders, but the Tibetans believe that there's no need to preserve the body after death anyway. And from an article from the New York Times written in 1999, one of the first articles to bring sky burial to the attention of the rest of the world, in fact, uh, there's this statement from one of the monks present during a ceremony. So he says that when the body dies, the spirit leaves, so there is no need to keep the body, said Garloji, a monk who came to observe the ceremony. The birds, they think they are just eating. Actually, they are removing the body and completing part of life cycle. So Tibetan sky burials are typically performed at dawn and they're close to outsiders and family and relatives are expected to remain close but not close enough to actually see it since it can get pretty brutal uh, basically the monk strips the flesh off the corpse and cuts them into small pieces when the flesh is taken care of the monk uses a hammer to crush the bones so that the carrion birds can safely eat the, those parts as well and no no part of the body is wasted and according to the interview with Garloji some people at his monastery also used the skulls of the dead as large cups for tea which is something we also see in the souls games i think in dark souls 3 i think like i've i've oh, kind man. of yeah yeah like i've re removed so much of that game from my memory that <laughs> <laughs> for good reason uh also, like interestingly, like Tibetans aren't the only ones who practice sky burial, since it was also practiced in Zoroastrianism in Persia. Hmm. Some scholars believe that the ritual actually came from Persia and was introduced to Tibet. And Zoroastrian sky burial ceremony is a lot more complex, and it involves a holy structure known as the Dakma or Tower of Silence. And the sky burial that you see depicted in the Souls games actually follows this formula more closely as opposed to the Tibetan version. And you see this especially in Demon Souls. So uh, I'm going to go through a description of how Zoroastrian sky burial is carried out. So, like, first of all, consecrated pomegranate juice is administered to the person on the point of death. And once that person dies, the corpse is washed and dressed in used but clean white clothes, and a sacred thread is tied around the body while holy verses are recited. The deceased is then laid on a stone slab on a circle of gravel or in an excavated spot in the house, and circles are traced around the corpse to isolate it from its surroundings. A lamp of clarified butter is then lit. The hands are folded across the chest, and the corpse is shown to a four-eyed dog, which is basically a dog with spots above its eyes. And it was believed that the dog would refuse to look at the body if it still had any life force left in it. Uh, during this time, a fire is kept burning in the house for as long as the body is in it, and it's only put out when the body is removed. Corpse removal is done in daylight, on a sunny day, and the corpse is then covered, leaving only the face exposed. 
The face is only covered once all the mourners have paid respects to the dead. The dead is then strapped to an iron coffin on a bier and is carried by pallbearers who work in pairs. And these pallbearers must be completely silent during the funeral procession. The procession stops at the Tower of Silence, which is a raised circular structure made of stone where the body is offered to the birds. Before entering the tower, the face of the dead is uncovered and shown to the dog once more to ensure that the person really is dead. After entering the tower, the pallbearers deposit the corpse inside, then remove the clothes and throw them down to a deep well. The body is left exposed for the birds to eat, and after a few days, the pallbearers return to collect any bones that were left uneaten. So um, we all know that Old Hero and pretty much everything in the Shrine of Storms is associated with the practice of sky burial. Mm. And like for one thing, the dead are offered to what the inhabitants believe to be the quote-unquote god of the storm. The storm beasts are a stand-in for the vultures and crows, and the shrine itself is one large tower of silence. Um, interestingly, in the Demon, Demon Souls World History section in the official guide, uh, it said that the god of the shadow men didn't exist at all, and the people were just feeding their dead to the carrion birds. It was only when the colorless fog appeared and that the storm beasts and the storm king as we know them came to be. So it's very Lovecraftian things, like ideas mm-hmm. being made manifest and gaining a physical form. So the guide, the translation is kind of wonky, but I'm going to read it anyway, because like it gives us an idea of what this place is and what it was used for. <clears throat> The Shrine of Storms was an isolated land where pagans would go to worship the god of storms, and many legends of fallen heroes were mourned. The colorless fog released the flood of souls from the many catacombs which soon found hosts in the sculpted remains littered across the land. Tales of great pagan deities and voluntarian folklore gave birth to reality as the shrine is now home to fiction made flesh. Adjudicator, the great judge of the deceased, awaits the passing of a new hero to begin the process of purification before the soul is given up as a sacrifice to the great storm king, a mighty beast that soars high above the island's ancestral burial ground. The the storm king himself is merely the embodiment of the ideas of an ancient pagan civilization given corporeal form by the colorless fog. Deep inside the ruins of the Shrine of Storms is a burial ground devoted to the legend of a great and nameless hero who now blindly continues his lust for power and fame. He is well a legend of a distant generation perpetuated by the pagan rituals. So, like, I don't know if you guys have talked to Loki recently about, like, this particular uh, Not area. that particular. Yeah, he's, because... he's gradually working through the different areas. Okay. Yeah. Because what I notice is, like, the timeline is weird because you don't know whether Old Hero came first or Storm King came first. Yeah. Or, yeah. And... Well, what we can see here is that there are at least analogs between real-life Tibetan Buddhist monks who perform sky burial and some of the enemies, uh, and some of the enemies that we encounter in the Shrine of Storms. I mean, the most blatant example is the adjudicator who carried out the quote-unquote purification process by chopping up the bodies of the deceased. But rather than being a monk, the adjudicator, true to his, true to his name, acts more like someone who punishes the dead instead. So, like, there's a little bit of confusion about this area, about 
because it says heroes, right? So I wasn't right. sure if the Shrine of Storm was a place to venerate dead heroes or a place where sinners are brought to be punished instead. Because again, the translation is kind of wonky. Well, I, I took it as like they're offered to the adjudicator and then the adjudicator decides whether they're a hero or a sinner. Right. Right. The adjudicator um, made me think of in Egyptian mythology when the when you go to the underworld, your heart is weighed against the weight of a feather. Yeah, and then that's that determines whether basically you go to heaven or hell. And oh, cool! The adjudicator made me think of that, where he's like, he just looks at you and okay, if you've eaten birds, if you've done these things, then you're a sinner. Right. So like right. Anubis. That. So I, um, it's been a while. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, Amit, I think it is. I met the Devourer of Souls, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since I actually played through this area, so, like, I can't remember whether the the heroes and the sinners were actually separated from each other, because I mostly remember, like, different colored skeletons and the Grim Reaper. Yeah. And, of course, like, flying stingrays. Yeah, but basically the entire area is one large tower of silence and it's like really fascinating. I don't I don't I haven't seen any like aerial views of the place because I wanted to confirm if it was circular or not. I don't think it was. was uh, it? Hang on, I'll look up I can look up a map of that. Hang on. Okay. Uh, I thought, oh, I just found it and then realized it's the Shrine of the Storm from, like, Warcraft. Because it's it's a name that's used in a bunch of different <laughs> places. Specify Shrine of Storm's Demon Souls. Uh... Yeah, I'm only getting maps of the Nexus and some yeah. weird, questionable fan art that I probably shouldn't be looking at. <laughs> <laughs> Does it involve Gascoigne? It involves Sage Freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's enough Google for now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so some of the item descriptions and like the adjudicator's archstone reads, archstone of the demon adjudicator, the dead given seals of the hero by the adjudicator are taken to the Shadowman's shrine to be purified and mourned in the storm. And the meat cleaver description reads, a large cleaver formed from the soul of the demon adjudicator. It is the adjudicator's own weapon and transforms sinners into delicious looking cuts of meat. So I can't remember if there was also a different item that determined whether the dead were heroes or not. Well, there's there's the adjudicator's shield that specifies, like, here are the acts of a hero. It's like, um, I think it's like, if you're a coward or you harm birds, then you're not a hero. So presumably, yeah, presumably if you've harmed birds or you've been cowardly, then you don't receive the seal and the adjudicator just eats you. Right. Right. So that also ties in with real life, uh, real life sky burial. So, uh, in the Zoroastrian version, there is no like specific clause that you're supposed to not harm the birds when you're yeah. near the Tower of Silence. But I guess it's creative liberties and such. And so the next boss is the old hero who was 
this goes back again into the weird translation. He was either apparently meant to be offered to the Storm King, or he was a power hungry, uh, power hungry glory hound who wants to take the Storm King's power for himself. And the Archstone of the Demon Old Hero description reads, After purification, Hero's remains are offered to the Storm King. His wings cover the sky and he is accompanied by Storm Beast. Uh, in any case, he's a stand, he's a stand in for the deceased in Zoroastrian sky burial. The, bl- the blindfold and the bindings uh, on his body suggest something similar to the funeral rite that I described earlier. In this case, only the eyes and not the entire face are covered, and the bindings may have been used to strap the old hero onto the bier that carried him to the tower. His lips have also been cut off, which could be a nod to the pallbearers and mourners maintaining silence during the funeral procession. And the last boss of the Shrine of Storms is the Storm King, which, according to the world history description, again, only came to exist after the arrival of the colorless fog. So it may be that the, sh- the shadow men really were just offering the gods, the, the dead to the vultures, the crows, and other carrion birds in the area, and then develop the cosmology and a god around it to justify their practices over time. The Storm King Archstone reads, Archstone of the Demon Storm King. Like a huge flying stingray, the Storm King is the embodiment of the thoughts of shadow men from hundreds of years ago. So the Storm King is interesting because physically it looks like a giant stingray that also has bird feathers, and it's meant to be a stand-in for either a vulture or a crow. And at the same time, it shares aspects with dragons and Yamata no Orochi, the eight-tailed giant serpent from Shinto mythology. So in the myth, um, for those who are unfamiliar, the hero basically loses his sword in the battle with a giant serpent. And when he loses his sword, it also cuts off the middle tail. But when the middle tail is cut off, is cut off, he finds another sword inside it. And that's also where the tail weapons in the Souls games come from. And, uh, though you can't actually cut off the demon, the Storm King's tail and get a weapon out of it, like with the dragons and gargoyles and dark souls, you can use its spine as a weapon. If you give the Storm Demon Soul to Blacksmith Ed, you get the Morian Blade, not the other Morian Blade. <laughs> and its description reads, A gnarled, thorny, large sword of black quartz. Forged from the soul of the Demon Storm King, it is actually the marrow, uh, that's a translation error, it should be spine, of the Storm Beasts. These beasts take pleasure in the wielder's peril, and in these situations... The blade's power is greatly increased. So, one thing I was curious about is why they gave like the same name of the Morian blade to the sword you get from Yuria in Dark Souls Three, because because they, they brought back Storm Ruler, right? And it has the yeah. same function as Storm Ruler, but they had a completely different sword that had the same name as Morian blade. So, like, do you guys any have any thoughts on that or anything? Uh, no, not that I can think of. It may just be a call because it's the same principle. Like, um, the Morian blade in in three is it's similarly structured because it's meant to look like the the spires in Londor that are supposed to have all these like ridges along them. Yeah, I guess it's just like from recycling ideas again. But yeah. I don't know. I, I just found it kind of odd because. They went to this effort to bring back Storm Ruler and like keep most of its basic attributes 
Uh, yeah. Um, so that's mostly it for the uh, Shrine of Storms, unless you guys want to add any t- anything to it. We should point out that, that there are, like, carrion birds in the shrine. Presumably, that yeah, they predate the Storm Beast. And it's also where you meet the the crow, the kind of sparkly um, equivalent. Yeah. The original. So, uh, what, do you guys have sparkly, any, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Do you guys have any okay. thoughts on why they turned into Stingrays specifically? Um, well, the thing is, they shoot those, like, the barbed um, stings at you. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, like, it's... I guess they're on a they're on an island. Presumably, there's an ocean around them. So they may have gotten like they may have a, a, like myths about like stingrays in the ocean that they've personified as these gods. Oh, like the like the sea bishop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sea bishop or sea monk. Yeah. And you can imagine, like, if, if it's a storm thing, maybe, like, during storms, like, sea creatures would be washed ashore or something if the storm was particularly fierce. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so, another depiction of Sky Burial can also be found in Hemlock Charnel Lane, and Richie did an entire video on this, like, almost four years ago now. Yeah, so. yeah. So you know more about it than I do. So well, no, I forgot. Okay. It's been years. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Rich is going to redo all of his. Yeah, I'm going to redo all of them just so I can get it out of my system and never talk about it again. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So in Hemwick, there are all of these. It's called Hemwick, Hemwick Channel Lane. Uh, a charnel house is somewhere that you leave corpses that have already turned into bones. Um, but a place where you would leave fresh corpses is called a charnel ground. And in Hemwick, there are all of these corpses stuck to poles out in the um, out in the open. And there's a big emphasis on crows in that area. So you, when you go into Hemwick, the first thing you see is, is all these crows flying off into the distance. There are packs of crows just kind of, like, chilling in Hemwick. And the Witch of Hemwick is obsessed with ripping eyes out, which is what crows do, and she rips them out with a little scoop that's shaped like a crow. So there's a lot of crow stuff going on in Hemwick, because that, and also it's it's descended from Canehurst, which has its own crow shit going on. So what happens is that they talk about on uh, on Eileen's set that there's uh, the Hunter of Hunters wanted to... Under of Hunters dressed as a crow to suggest sky burial. And they also refer to like a Yarnum burial, what happens in Yarnum as like a, a kind of blasphemous funeral that they were trying to avoid um, inflicting on other people. So, kind of depending on how you see the Yarnum Henwick relationship, it's you could maybe say that like Yarnum and Henwick are. They're completely distinct things, even though they're like working with each other and trading with each other. So being buried in Hemwick and blah, blah, blah. being um, having your corpse disposed of in Hemwick is different from having it disposed of in Yana. So it looks like when they talk about blasphemous burial practices, it's like that what they're talking about in Yana is basically what the healing church are doing, where they're getting these uh, bodies and they're doing all these weird experiments and they're like ripping the parts out and using them in the 
in the labyrinth and sort of offering them to the Thumerians and the Great Ones. Whereas if you were Skyberry, that wouldn't happen because you'd have all your um, flesh picked clean by the birds. So it looks like in Hemwick, there's there's two kinds of uh, disposal going on. One of them is that you're cremated because the whole but the whole of Hemwick is basically a giant crematorium if you sort of like look at it closely. There's all these places where there's all these like pipes coming out of the walls with um all of this this steam coming out of them, steam and smoke. And all around Hemwick there's all of this like oil and there's all of this fire and there's all of this ash and it specifies the ash's bone that's been burned up. So it looks like in Hemwick you get cremated. It's also possible that um what what may actually be happening is that they leave the bodies out to be picked clean by the birds, and then they just cremate the bones. Yeah, they very specifically say that, like, the all the bone marrow ash you find in the game specifically says this came from Hemwick. Right. So yeah, that's so, that's interesting, because, like, when I was researching Sky Burial, like, especially the, the Tibetan version, you the, the monks specifically need to crush the bones with a hammer so that the vultures and the crows wouldn't choke on them when they eat it. And yeah, like yeah. I was wondering why in Hemwick, like the bodies were just impaled on poles and like it felt like it wasn't a proper sky burial at first, but now yeah. it makes sense because like yeah the yeah, the birds eat the flesh first and then they just collect the bones and then burn yeah. later. And there's even the there's women in Hemwick with gigantic mallets that you would use to like smash up bones with, yeah. Yeah. But the weird thing is that like We've been talking about sky burial, and the reason you're saying it happens in Tibet is because in Tibet there's not room to actually have graves. Yes. But in Hemwick, like, there is just a straight-up gigantic cemetery, like, everywhere. So there it looks like it's it's more like a purely sort of ritualistic thing. It doesn't really have a grounding in, like, a practical use. Unless it's just to get the ash. Do you think there might be a great one who's similar to a crow or a vulture or something, and maybe that's some sort of offering that the people well, of Hemwick are giving to them. There's the wet nurse, because the wet nurse is very crow-like. Right, but is the wet nurse a great one? Um, well, it's, the, the trophy says she's a great one, so we'll just go with that. I don't know. I, I think the idea is that the wet the wet nurse is a great one that showed up instead of Cos. Hmm. But like we have no idea. Um Yeah. Do you think the do you think the wet nurse might be like a misplaced asset that she should have been in Hemwick instead of oh, the Nightmare? No, no, I, I can tell you exactly where the wet nurse was supposed to be. And it's okay. Not, it's not there. She's um uh she's meant to be like it looks like you would have fought her in the in the Dreamlands as like the Dreamlands version of the woman who became Yosefka. And she would have worked with the Shadows of Yana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um But yeah, like I think a lot of um a lot of Hemwick Hemwick is like the 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 sort of peasant town at the base of Canehurst. So it looks like a lot of Hemwick traditions kind of came from Canehurst. So the the whole sky burial ash crow thing may have come from there originally, and they've just kept it going since Kanehurst was cut off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that most of Kanehurst Castle is like unfinished, and you can't access yeah. most of it because maybe they also had like their own sky burial ceremony area somewhere. 
Well, the queen's mask, is it at all like like a beak? It looks a lot like um, Griffith's mask from Berserk, which is like a crow, like hawk design. Oh, what about the guy? The bloody crow. The crow. Yeah. 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 Okay, so. Anything there? How how does Eileen (laughs) tie into all this? Good question. It's a really good question. Probably doesn't. (laughs) They make make this big deal out of like the hunter of hunters is a thing that's passed down. Like, giving the impression it's a really, really old thing. But then, because the game can't quite get its timeline straight, there's other stuff that suggests the whole like hunt thing is only like maybe 20 years old at most. But you also get the impression that like Eileen, it's like, um, like the Dark Knight kind of thing where like she's at the end of her life and she's looking for a successor and she's been doing this for like 50 years or something. Yeah. What does she say about the sky barrel again? She doesn't say anything. It just says so on her item description. It says that she's dressed as a crow. Yeah. Although it's, it's weird because it says she's dressed as a crow to suggest sky burial, but then on the headpiece, it says she's wearing that headpiece because it's packed with herbs that ward off the smell. Well, that's, that's another nod to demon souls, at least, because that's yeah. what the, the citizens of the Valley of Defilement wear. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like a real thing. Like, that's why Plague Doctor's dressed like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I hear a kitty. It's Corvo. Yeah, Aww. it's Corvo. Hi, Corvo. <laughs> he left. <laughs> He's like, no, do not pet me. Do not touch okay. me. But... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's that thing again where Bloodborne's timeline makes no sense. It could just be recycled assets because. Well, we were talking about it, um, about like the history of hunting in Yarnum with some other, some like fanfic people I know. And we were like, well, it's possible that because Yarnum's above the Chalice Dungeons and it's next to Kanehurst, that like beast hunting, maybe beasts always existed and were always hunted. But it's only since the Healing Church moved in that they became like a serious problem that had to be dealt with all the time. Yeah, and maybe that's why like German, like the hunters as an organization existed, but they were just putting down like, you know, every so often there would be a beast. So it's possible that like the hunter of hunters and the hunters and everything have existed forever. But the confusing part is that um. It's also implied that the whole reason people go blood drunk and have to be killed is because of cause. And the cause thing is like at most like 20 or 30 years ago. Right. Because they keep kind of revising like exactly how it works. Yeah, because like there was this dialogue where um, I think it was the gatekeeper who says like, oh, you're my first guest in 20 years. And then it goes all the way to like, a century yeah. yeah it goes all the way to a century but like it's like 20 it's like um a year five years 10 years 20 years 50 years a century but the 20 years one got subtitled and the others didn't so i think that's the one they were closest to sitting on before they cut it i i think like i think i may have brought this up before but the best way to date it is that the choir are orphans that the healing church recruited when they moved to yana and the choir are like between 20 and 30 at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think like if they moved in, then they recruited the orphans. It's been like 20, 20, 25 years since they set up. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that's how I like rationalize it. Right. And do you think there's also like a similar way to date Hemwick as like in comparison to Yarnum? Because like I think that like Hemwick was there first, and then like Yarnum came later. Um. Yeah. It, but like by came later, like it's not it's not like Yarnum is a recent city. It's been there for like. Yarnum is just like they just kept building upward from the Chalice Dungeons and popped out the top as like humans. Yeah. So, um, yeah, H- Hemwick is weird because Hemwick's like, it looks like it was originally dependent on Kanehurst, or Kanehurst was dependent on it, I guess, because Kanehurst had the nobility. But like, the the idea is like that Kanehurst and Hemwick were were connected, and then when Kanehurst got sacked and destroyed. Uh, Hemwick just became like an isolated thing and just became like a, it sort of, yeah, it was just cut off from everything else. So it's got like, yeah, just like you had like degenerated bits of Kanehurst kind of hanging around. It's like they, they like, it's a matriarchal village because Kanehurst was a matriarchy and it like, it, it does rituals with dead bodies like Kanehurst did because they're all like Thumerians and. Okay. Yeah, you can you can see that they're cut off actually because there's no beasts in uh, Hemway, so they're not taking in Yarnum blood. Um, there are those like big executioner guys though, but yeah, I don't know they're if not they technically they're not beasts, beasts. Okay, no, they're just they're just really big. <laughs> <laughs> they're just big lads. Yeah, yeah. I was I always assumed they were beasts because like uh, for the same reason that I assumed like the brick throwing. Like over yeah. things in Yarnum were beasts, but apparently they're not. So, no, they're they're. I'm pretty sure they're Thumerians. Okay, I'm pretty. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they are the um the above ground version of the big fat guys from the labyrinth. They just put some plate armor on. Yeah, they have um they have beast skulls like hanging from their belts. They have like little little beast heads that they've gone around uh, decapitating them. And do you think that also has the significance to the uh, sky burial ceremonies that take place in Hemwick, or like it's, it's just like their own Thumerian thing? No, I, I think that you you always find them near graveyards. So I think that they're just like they're just Thumerians whose job it is to cut up dead bodies. It's like you find them there. You find there's the one near Yasefkas because there's a graveyard there, and there's the ones in um, Yahagul because that's where all the bodies are being taken. So they're just like. The the name in um in Japanese it's like the dismantling man, which is the same name that they give to the big red robed guys in Dark Souls Three, the ones who like have the the pots full of heads. Yeah, so it's the same deal. It's like they're just they're cutting up bodies. Uh, Sin, did you want to say something? I mean, there's a lot I I want to say to Richie. Yeah. But it's all going to get cut out anyway. Okay, we'll, we'll do that later on. You can yell at me. Patreon.com slash Sinclair Lord. <laughs> I won't even make it to that. <laughs> One day, like, I'll start releasing the private messages she sends me. <laughs> where it'll just be like, I'm working and I get this, like, series of distracting messages and they just say, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> And then I message you and say, "Did you do you want to tell me something?" You say, "No." Uh, I assume there's going to be a gap in the podcast where that conversation took place. 
<laughs> Who knows? Our podcasts are getting predictable. <laughs> and there's going to be like some elevator music and a random picture of a cat with a cookie. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk about how um, the, the crow hunter as an idea, like that wasn't always Eileen that went through different iterations. Yeah. Um, the Eileen set is referred to internally as Brandon's. It's called Brandon's Bloody Crow set. Yeah. And um, Brand- Brandon as a name means crow. So it looks like the very first kind of like iteration of that character was a dude called Brandon who wore this crow set. And if you look at, at the set, it looks like the Healing Church clothing. It looks like a modified version of what the Healing Church are wearing. Like it's got the same kind of design, the the um, double-breasted look and the... Even... The yeah, the bell and um, like the the beak thing comes out of a hood, like the hood on the black church set. So it looks like it was designed initially as like a like an actual plague doctor. Like this was a yeah. So like they were like an actual um, sub faction of the healing church. Then I guess what yeah, whenever it was initially designed, like it, it, they may have just like drawn it because it looked cool, and then come up with a story later on. Yeah, that, but that's, yeah, that it sounds is, likely. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but it does look like mo- it's like a modified healing church set, mm-hmm. and it's called like Brandon's Bloody Crow set. So the concept of like the Bloody Crow was there as well. Yeah, and it's it's possible that like this Brandon character may have been like the the German apprentice who vanished because and then became Maria later on because like I don't. I don't know, like, because we end up with like the bloody crow character being linked to Kanehurst. So I'm wondering if, like, maybe that was that was what was going on. Because there's no, um, it's not that there's no removed armor sets, but the there's no actual removed entire sets. There's just like a couple of removed like set pieces. Yeah, it's not like in Dark Souls Three where they had like I remember there was this knight armor set that was in cut content, but then they brought it back in Ashes of yeah. Arendelle. Yeah, film set. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the cut armor stuff is ju- it's just like Mikolash's set has arm pieces that are like shackles. And um, Dura's set has a, like a different head piece, and that's all. Yeah. Oh well, no, no. There's, there's like other weird shit. There's like a, there's like a Garden of Eyes head you can wear, and there's like Annalise's sets in there. But there's nothing like wholly new that we've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. So like they were just moving assets around and. Stuff. Yeah. Did you know I have a really good Garden of Eyes video? Is that the one where you scream? That's a lot of them. No. <laughs> what? No, like the one, the one where the Garden of Eyes just like falls in front of you, and then there's this loud scream. No, no, that was something else. Oh my god. That was the uh one of the sketchy boss slash NPC <laughs> arenas videos, I think. Or was it Birkenworth? Was that Dignity City? Dignity City, I think it was. How many times have we recorded about Birkenworth? I think it was just like the fourth. <laughs> A bunch. No, it's the one um the one where I explain the purpose and origins of Garden of Ice. You should check it out, Carl. It's very good. I'll send it to you later. Okay. It's Rich's favorite video. 
Yeah, she she uncovered something. She uncovered something really important, <laughs> which is. Ah, uh, you have to see it to believe it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for this section, I've titled it "Miyazaki likes mummies" because <laughs> a lot of enemies in the Souls game uh, they tend to lean heavily towards having strong mummy influences in their designs. Uh, despite, the, despite the fact that typically these enemies are based on generic zombies, like for example, the Dreglings and the Hollows. And I think this is simply because mummies are just far more unsettling to look at. Yeah. Um, it has, it has everything to do with the uncanny valley effect. We recognize that this is supposed to be a human being, but it just looks wrong and, uh, therefore scary. It's the same reason why most people wouldn't bat an eyelid at a skeleton in a science lab or museum. But they're creeped out by something like the Body Worlds exhibit. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. I've seen it. Oh, cool. I have not. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, what are your thoughts on like the ethics of the Body Worlds exhibit? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know where did I don't even know where did they get the bodies. Yeah, I think like at first, like the bodies came from like willing donors because they wanted like to be used for science. But afterwards, uh-huh. like after the the exhibit got successful for a few, for a few years, like the guy who did all of the the plastic the plasticine plasticine that that is a tongue twister the the bodies like he made like a sex exhibit with the bodies and these came from like non consensual donors so it got like Whoa. really iffy. How did he? Wait, wait, but how did he get the bodies? I, did he dig them? I up? have no idea, but. Like it's pretty controversial. Pretty controversial. Oh damn! Yeah, uh, but the thing is, like, the the point is, like, those the things on the Body Worlds exhibit are a lot more freaky to look at as opposed to a regular human skeleton because we're desensitized to a skeleton because for the most part it doesn't have human features. Yeah. That's why in horror games, like, if you see a skeleton enemy, like, you're not really creeped out by it, but when you see something like a zombie enemy or like what I'm going to talk about next, the mummy enemies are a lot freakier to look at. So uh, in the games, there are several types of mummification that's referenced, whether through an actual practice or as a visual nod in their character design. And the most common instances we see are bog bodies, incorruptibility, and sokushin butsu or self-mummification. And again, Miyazaki must really like mummies. So the the first one I'm going to talk about is bog bodies, and you see these in the Valley of Defilement, Blight Town, in the uh, coat and coat Yarnum water zombies, as well as in the uh, Crucifixion Woods and the Merkmen. So bog bodies are formed through natural mummification by peat from bogs. Bogs or marshes are formed when moss builds up in low lying patches of land and. This then um, drenches the soil with water, so that this prevents oxygen and nutrients from circulating, and this also prevents bacteria from entering. So these things are like quicksand. Um, the, if you fall in, the more you struggle, the faster you sink to the bottom. So anything that's been buried under the bog will have no contact with outside bacteria, which delays decomposition. And over time, a new layer of peat will accumulate over the old one, continuing to preserve the body underneath. And from my observation, like again, the enemies from the Valley of Defilement, Blight Town, and Crucifixion Woods have designs that are likely based on 
bog bodies, and the most obvious reference can be seen in the Merkman from the Ring City. So bog bodies are unique compared to other mummies because they retain their skin and internal organs, and the preservation process, it's very acidic, so it leaves it leaves the bodies with a greenish-gray or completely blackened skin, and they look like a cross between the standard dry mummy and a drowned corpse. And a good example is the Gro- uh, Grobal Man, one of the most complete bog bodies ever found. And if you look him up on Google, he literally looks like his body is melting into black sludge, which is, again, something similar to the enemies I've mentioned. And I think this may in part be inspiration for the entire concept of the deep. Right. Yeah. So many of the bog bodies that have been found by archaeologists bear traces of violence. Uh, that's one of the main reasons why they're really fascinating, because the bogs were essentially prehistoric murder scenes. So I'm just going to name a couple, because uh, they're really interesting in how they were found and the way they died. We have the Wirdinge couple, two bodies that were found in the southern part of the Bortanger Moor in the Netherlands in 1904. Both of the victims were male, which led some archaeologists to believe that they were a gay couple that was punished by being thrown into the bog and left to drown because at, at around the same time, uh, the Romans were spreading rumors that the Germanic tribes um, punished homosexuality with death. Uh, however, one of the victims also has a large, ga- a large gash in his chest and stomach. So there's also speculation that the two men died in battle instead. And for some reason, their bodies were washed away and ended up in the bogs and marshes. In uh, 1879, there was a body of an adult woman who was found in a bog near Rompton, Jutland, in Denmark. Known as Holdermo's woman, the person died sometime between 160 BCE and 340 CE from multiple hacks and stabs to the body. And her arm was also severed before her body was covered by the peat. We have the Ida girl in the province of Drenthe. Holland also in 1897. This person died a violent death sometime between 170 BCE and 230 CE from strangulation by a makeshift rope made from layers of, wood, of woolen cloth, and she also had a stab wound on her clavicle. There's Elling woman who was found in 1938 in the Bields Blog, I, bog, I'm so sorry for butchering that. <laughs> in uh, Silkeborg, Denmark. And she appears to have been hanged or grotted with a thick leather belt sometime during the pre-Roman Iron Age between 350 and 100 BCE. And one of the more fascinating ones is Tallon Man. He was discovered in the same bog in 1950 and he lived in the 3rd or 2nd century BCE. He's thought to have died at around 30 to 40 years of age choked to death with a leather garrote. What's interesting about this bog, bog, bog body is the fact that his face is very well preserved, including the facial hair and his wrinkles, whereas the rest of his body is decayed. And this is both eerie and interesting because his face looks like it's carved from stone, but the rest of his body looks like it's just bone and bits of mummified flesh. And re- he reminds me a lot of the marionettes that Miklash has in The Nightmare of Menses. Since those are also uh, human corpses with a head made of stone. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that was also inspiration for the team when they were designing those enemies. And uh, some of the bog bodies that were found are also believed to have been possibly ritual sacrifices. 
such as the mummy known as Windaby Girl, uh, but it was later found out he was actually Windaby Boy. Now, this body has arms that are bound, a leather, a leather cord around their neck that was used to strangle them, and a blindfold tightly wrapped around their eyes. Uh, it's interesting because we were talking about Old Hero earlier, and this mummy actually looks like Old Hero, kind of. So, like, I also wouldn't be surprised if this was also, like, inspiration for the design. Right. Okay, so uh, the next kind of mummification we're going to talk about is uh, incorruptibility, also known as saint mummification. And you see this in the uh, question mark scholar of Rhone on the altar in Deracine and also with Yulia. Right. So... um, Hmm. Uh, definition of incorruptibility, it is a Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox belief that divine intervention allows the bodies of saints and other holy figures to either delay or avoid the normal process of decomposition after death. Uh, because there's little to no bodily decay, or at least the decay takes a really long time to set in, these bodies are referred to by holy institutions as incorrupt or incorruptible. So the Catholic Church is a bit inconsistent with how dead bodies are supposed to qualify as incorruptible. Um, sometimes you'll see, sorry, sometimes you'll see um, actual bodies of saints and servants of the church on display, which were preserved using oils and inserting herbs into their flesh. And these actually look like mummies, and some of them are just outright, um, outright skeletons. Uh, but most of the time, you're more likely to see a very obvious wax model or a wooden sculpture that's made to look like a person. So, like, for example, like the supposedly incorrupt bodies of figures like St. Bernadette, St. Clair of Assisi, and Padre Pio, they're life-life for sure, but they're very obviously made of wax. And I think also Lenin. I don't I don't think he's incorruptible. Oh, yeah! Lenin! (laughs) Lenin, Lenin had, like, all of his bodily fluids removed and replaced with, like, embalming agents. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Richie would know it. He's the best love. (laughs) (laughs) She's decided I'm an honorary slav as part of this podcast. (laughs) Well, Richie, tell tell Cal what manga you have. Oh, yeah, I have uh, Marx's Capital in manga. Someone bothered making it. (laughs) Is that for real? Yeah, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you guys need to do a podcast about that someday. <laughs> Depends on how quickly we run out of material. <laughs> well, um, uh, going back to uh, incorruptibility, uh, Derosine has like, a more realistic portrayal of saint mummification than most real-world saints on display, because uh, in this game, we have the body on the altar that Nils prays in front of. So, like, I tend to just call it uh, either a saint or a scholar, because like the fi- the figure is a very obvious rep- reference to the bodies that are on display in um in churches everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and um, they may or may not be Abigail? Question mark. And yeah. uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of debate over whether or not the ba- the the body on the altar is an actual human corpse or some sort of statue or wood carving. So, yeah. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to thank Richie and Laura for sending me screenshots so I could actually like identify what was what because I don't have the game itself. Um, but it's not very clear when you look at it uh, from where Nils is standing. But upon closer inspection, you can see that the robes are 
uh, in fact, carved out of wood. But the face and the hands look out of place in comparison. Uh, the face specifically look, looks like it's either a wax or a plaster cast of a human face, which is why some of us believe that the body is wearing a death mask. Yeah, also, that, was, yeah it, um, that was how I took it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, if you look at the hands, they're a different color from the wood-carved robes because uh, the wood is like very red, like it looks like varnished wood. And you can actually see like little scratches for where the unvarnished parts are. But when you look at the hands, like they're all gray and dry, and it actually has fingernails. So this is why I think that they are, they are actually hands that are dry and decomposing. And the thing is that you see it on the altar, and directly in front of that is the preserved body of Nook. So it's, I think it's very clearly trying to suggest to you that like there, that is a preserved body as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we think that the body on the altar is an actual human corpse that was put inside a wooden statue, and um, it may or may not be an offering to a fairy, like with the intent of the fairy bringing it back to life. Yeah. Yeah, so what, like, I don't know, like, why why go to all the trouble of putting the body inside the wooden carving to offer it to a fairy when you can just have it as is because i mean yulia's corpse is still around um i'll talk more about that later but like i was just curious like why go to those specific steps if if indeed the body is an offering well it may have died like a long time before yulia and they just needed to keep it in better condition yeah yeah so that does tie in with like <clears throat> something that happened in real life. And I think I sent you guys links to this article with the, the, the Buddha with the mummy inside it. Oh yeah. 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 So there's real life president for the whole corpse inside a statue idea at least. Yeah. yeah so um, basically in 2015, a man from the Netherlands bought a sitting Buddha statue at an antiques market and when he brought it to experts to have it restored, they found a thousand-year-old mummified monk stuffed inside the cavity. And the monk was sitting on a bundle of cloth covered in Chinese inscriptions. It was later identified as Buddhist monk called Liu Quan, who practiced self-mummification or Sokushin Butsu, uh, which again I'll talk about later. And uh, according to the archaeology curator from the Dresden Museum, it's possible that the mummy was worshipped in a Buddhist temple in China for the first 200 years. And then for some reason, the mummy's organs were removed and the body was stuffed into a statue in the 14th century. So um, it's still kind of unclear why it was done. Like some believe it was to protect the body from decay. If something similar happened to the body on the altar in Durasane, then maybe like this body is who knows how long, 200, 300 years old and it's weird because like i i'm not really sure how the fairy magic works in this game because it's not 100 accurate to most fairy lore that you no. come across in like irish celtic mythology yeah yeah um, yeah so huh, that makes me think is it abigail or is it not yeah we we went back and forth about who it could possibly be yeah yeah because like the the features on the death mask look kind of feminine to me, yeah. 
Because mm. mm. Abigail does leave you messages, but they could have been left at any time. Like, they're, they're not necessarily for you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, like, rather than the person dying and, like, the body being slow to decompose, like, incorruptibility, like, we'll just call that the mummification in Durasine, um, it's, it mostly seems to be related to a fairy phenomenon. Cause, like, you see this happen to Lawrence when you take away time, you see it happen to Yulia. Yeah. But, like, another confusing thing is that when it happens to Yulia, when we take away her time at the Sarfa game, her body is still around, like, maybe months or years later and hasn't disappeared like the others. Because yeah. when Lawrence mummifies, like, it, you see it happening, but at the same time, he says that he's disappearing. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, the other kids just kind of vanish into thin air and they don't seem to go through the mummification process. Oh, no, they, they do. They do if you look really closely. If you look very closely when Rosa and Marie get um, disappeared, you can see them kind of shrivel up like very briefly before they vanish. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So, yes. Who doesn't disappear? And oh, well, okay. La- La- Lawrence, quote unquote, doesn't disappear on screen, but he says, "I'm disappearing." And I, th- I think, I think it's just down to um, time stops. So time is just has just stopped, like just before he's disappeared, and then when we progress onward, he he actually vanishes. Right. Right. So, um, how come Yulia's corpse is still around, like, months or years later? I think because, I think because, like, they just describe her as having died. Like, she dies during the storm, so it's possible that, like, yeah. Maybe we don't- No, mm. but we're the ones that kill her with the magic wand. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, there's a diary that's, like, the report on Yulia, and it says, like, her heart gave out. Yeah, so, I, I, she yeah. said that, like, um, the diary said that she, um, her poor heart, but, like, yeah. it's kind of unclear, like, whether she yeah, it could be had heart problems or not. Well, it has to be metaphorical, Richie. Because we took her time in the beginning. No, but she could have had a heart condition. Okay, but, <laughs> oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? No, no, because a bunch of the kids, like, uh, did, I think we discussed this with no, Laura. No, I get it. Yeah. They're sick yeah. kids. I get yeah. it. You told me about it. I get yeah. it. But what I'm saying is, regardless of her pre-existing conditions, yeah. we're the ones that killed her because we took her time. Yeah, we're the ones that, like, took her, o- like, pushed her over the edge to killing her. But, like, it's possible that she, like was going to die of a heart condition or something, and we just, like, happened to nudge it slightly in that direction. Like, we didn't fully dis... No, but we we might not have, like, fully taken all of her time away. So this kind of ties into, like, what we think that there's there's a way to partially give a fairy your time, like, what we think the headmaster is doing. Well, it's like when we grab the snake, we take the snake's time and it just becomes a mummified snake. Yeah. It doesn't disappear. So it's, it looks like maybe you can take like some of the time from something, but not make it completely vanish. Because, hmm. I mean, y- Yuli is the first person we take time from. So it might be that because we don't, we're not like fully hungry yet. We don't take all of it. Yeah. 
Because, like, with, especially with Lawrence and you drain the time from him, it actually takes a while. Like, it makes you watch, like, for a very long time as his, his time disappears and he sort of withers. Yeah. 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 Um, so in the uh, infirmary where Yulia's corpse is, uh, there's, like, jars of spices and stuff. Do you think the kids were somehow actively trying to keep the body preserved? Oh, they, they say that. There's like, um, there's an echo of, I think it's Marie in the room and she's just like, she's preparing like, um, oils and things to put on Yulia's corpse. Okay. So this like makes me think of something else, like in the part of the game where you bring Yulia back to life, like not at the end of the game, like sort of towards the three, the last three quarters of the game. If she yeah. had like embalming fluids in her and stuff, like how can she come back to life? Like it's, it's the same issue I have with like little new. Cause like he's very, speci- he's very overtly said to be like the body was quote unquote glazed by a steady hand. So yeah. if he had like embalming fluid, like arsenic or formalin or glycerin or whatever, like he yeah. basically varnished the dead mouse. How, how can the dead mouse come back to life if he I has all these like, he just has toxic chemicals. Magic. It's magic. magic. It's ma- it's a fairy. It's magic. <laughs> also, like Nu Nu dies from choking to death on a thing that's still in his throat. Yeah. So if you bring him back to life, he should just immediately choke to death again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like some of the weird things. Like with, like with New, like he still has the music the music box gear in his throat, which means that they didn't take out his internal organs when he was embalmed or glazed or whatever. So like if the same thing is true with Yulia, it's like, um, yeah. Yeah. I they think too much bit, about these, yeah. these things. <laughs> they seem a bit too happy with the Yulia situation to have removed her organs. <laughs> like they, they specifically <laughs> say that like, we'll find a fairy to bring back Yulia. What if? Okay. No, no. Richie. Richie. Cal. Yes. What if? (laughs) (laughs) The fairy took a little bit of Yulia's time, Mm -hmm. but then the kids killed her. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) Is this part of your, like, 10 shocking Deracine theories that will ruin your childhood. Because <laughs> you did say they were a little too happy about it. So maybe it was their plan all along. Or alternatively, like, maybe maybe they thought she was, like, still alive, but, like, like how, like, some Buddhist mummies are, like, people think they're still alive, even though they're yeah. very clearly dead. They do talk to her like she's alive. Richie, Richie, Cal. Yes. What if we took a little bit of her time and she was still alive and then the kids mummified her while she was still alive? (laughs) Huh? That's possible. But... Yeah, um, since, like, I guess, like, we're, we mostly have this consensus that, yes, fairies can partially take time, so, like, maybe that's why the headmaster looks, like, super old, and yeah. also the same reason that Margareta seems to have stopped aging for some reason. 
which is like when you look oh, at all right, yeah, yeah, like the like like the photos uh, of her with the other scholars of Rhone, and then the the photo of her when the kids arrive. Like she looks like she hasn't aged a day. Yeah. So yeah, fairy magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like speaking of Margareta, like her corpse also kind of looks like a mummy, but that's most likely just the result of the body decomposing in the water. And the evil fairy also looks like a mummy. Um, this could just be from Soft reusing their assets again, because he also suspiciously looks like the orphan of cause. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What if? The orphan of Cos kills Yulia. Well, it is Bloodborne too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there was an article recently that like Miyazaki actually apologized for putting so many Bloodborne references in Tarasine. He did. Yeah, because he he was getting like ang- angry messages from people, and like people were like review bombing the game because it was false advertising for Bloodborne two, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, he just he said like the team has a lot of affection for Bloodborne, so we put some references in, but we may have overdone it. Yeah, yeah, he's like, yeah. I didn't expect all y'all to be so stupid to think that this is literally Bloodborne too. I apologize. The only people <laughs> like, that were surprisingly the only people that are literally the dumbasses of the community that didn't think it was Bloodborne too were part of the Snap Covenant. Yeah, he's just like, <laughs> yeah, Bloodborne too, but Aztec seriously. Who'd come up with that? (laughs) (sighs) Well, um, to segue into the next part, like I'm just going to have this tangentially related fun fact. So the Vatican Mm -hmm. had, at one point, they had an elite mummification team that they sent around the world to restore the bodies of saints that were starting to rot with modern embalming chemicals. And this is why the body of Pope John the Twenty Third is so well preserved compared to other saint mummies. And that's Interesting. that's the fun fact for the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, the last the last portion is about suction butsu or self mummification. That's like one of my favorites because like I've been interested in this even before uh, I got into the Souls games because this was also present in one of my favorite horror games, um, Fatal Frame Two. Is one of the one of the enemies there looks like a mummified monk, and like he gave me nightmares as a teenager. Yeah. So um, yeah, Sakushin Butsu, uh, also known as Buddhist mummies, you see these in Marshall Lagarius, Mikolash. Um, it's kind of debatable whether you see it in the old monk or not. Uh, it mm. basically refers to a practice in Shingon Buddhism, where monks undergo a deliberate process of self-mummification while they're still alive, and this is done as a means to attain enlightenment. And one of the most famous accounts uh, of this practice was of the monk Tetsumonkai. At age 49, he decided to become a Buddha through self-mummification. He had himself entombed alive in an underground pit with no food or water and only a small bell to declare his presence. He stayed there for 14 days until the bell went silent, after which the tomb was sealed for 1,000 days, which is like a little over three years. And when his body was exhumed, it was perfectly mummified. So like the process for self-mummification was developed by the monk Kukai, the founder of Shingon Buddhism, and it comes in two phases. So the first stage starts with 
getting rid of as much flesh, flesh as possible through a strict diet with no carbohydrates. And monks were only allowed to eat nuts and seeds that they found in the forest. So they do this diet for three years. And after, after that, the monks go on to the second stage, which is three more years of severe dieting. <laughs> and this, this time, the only thing the practitioners were allowed to eat was a small amount of pine tree bark and roots. And it's thought that the pine resin from the bark actually slowly embalms the body from the inside. And in addition, the monks also made a drink made from the sap of the rushi tree, which is highly poisonous. But it greatly increases the body, the chances of the body preserving itself after death. The sap also kills like any maggots or insects that lay eggs in the dead body. And it's believed that they also used like water that was toxic and mixed it with this tea. Like they got this water from hot springs that had large amounts of arsenic in them. So like they, it was basically like slow poisoning for the, for these six years that they're preparing for their self modification. And like the main goal is to lose all of their body fat. So it is basically like an insane diet. So once the monks have lost all, all of their body fat, they're sent into the pit to meditate. And because uh, body fat has a high moisture content, its absence causes the human body to dry out and preserve faster. The meditation also aids in the mummification process because it slows down the body's metabolism until the uh, individual's heart and lungs stop functioning. And uh, this takes, um, they do this for about 14 to 21 days, I believe. And after that, another period of 1,000 days or over three years, um, um, the other monks wait for that to pass. And that's when the bodies are exhumed. And most of the time, they're already perfectly mummified by then. Uh, On a related note, uh, in the temple complex of Mount Koya, the birthplace of Shingon Buddhism, Monks also carry out a ritual where a small lamp is kept burning continuously from generation to generation. And this has been happening for over a thousand years. And I think that this might be the inspiration for the first flame in Dark Souls. Like, it's not an actual fire. Like, it's just a tiny lamp. But I guess an actual fire is a lot more dramatic. So, yeah. (laughs) In the Souls games, um, we we find like some of the more obvious examples of Sokushin Butsu or self-mumpication in Marcel Ligarius. Um, his method is a lot less complicated because as far as we know, he didn't go on a six-year diet of no carbohydrates. And like, Well, we don't know. Maybe oh, he did. <laughs> uh, that's true. Maybe that's all they ate in that faraway land of his. <laughs> faraway land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like, and like one difference um, for how he mummified versus how the Shingon Buddhist monks mummified is that he didn't sit meditating in a hole underground. He just sat outside on his throne in the snow until he froze like Udsi. And um, Richie also mentioned in one of his previous lore videos that Logarius wrote a death poem while he was self-mummifying on the snow. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's where his famous quote comes from. And um, I mentioned earlier that some people think that the the Buddhist mummies are actually still alive and they're just in a state of hibernation. So Martyr Ligarius comes back to life to fight the hunter. And this could be a nod to that same belief that Mm. they're not actually dead. Like they're just 
meditating or they're comatose or they're sleeping or whatever. And in 2016, there were news reports that the body of Lama Daji Dorso Ichigilov, uh, he died in 1927, came back to life after 89 years in a quote-unquote bid for world peace. He was the uh, revered Buddhist leader in Russia before and after the Bolshevik Revolution. And his body was usually kept in a glass case in his temple in Siberia. And uh, around the time of the rumors, there was this grainy CCTV footage that showed a figure that was apparently the, mo- the, the monk walking around. Though it's still kind of questionable because like, the figure that was walking around was dressed in like military camouflage and was carrying what <laughs> appeared to be grocery bags. <laughs> well, he just went shopping for some snacks. Like, I'm getting a little hungry. Here. No, it was like it was it was interesting because like around the time like this footage came out, like all these leaders were saying that oh, like the llama has come back to life, and he's we- he's wearing military camouflage because that's a signal for world peace, and he's carrying grocery <laughs> bags because he wants to feed the hungry. Oh my god, that's Lord. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just like really fascinating what people think of these things and like the, the extent they go to for achieving enlightenment. And, um, yeah. Um, another example of this, um, Sokshin Butsu in Bloodborne is Mikolash because his physical body, his physical body, uh, mummified. While he was meditating, or like more accurately, astral projecting his consciousness to the nightmare of Mansis. And like what we know from the actual practice, um, theoretically, his body would have taken around three years to reach the mummified state he's in. But like we've already talked about, the timeline of Bloodborne is really convoluted and it's hard yeah. to <laughs> gauge yeah. what took place and when. Um, another, like a more debatable case, possibly the old monk from Demon Souls, but this is more likely because the demon cloth was sustaining his life force and he dies when the Slayer of Demons enters his boss arena. Uh, oh, and, uh, we have two more debatable cases in everyone's favorite game, Dark Souls 3. Yay! Yay! Woo! So who wants to talk about <laughs> the snake doll of Ariandel? Well, uh, everyone and then no one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what happened. What could it possibly mean? And then it meant nothing, and everyone just forgot about it. It's yeah. Priscilla. Yeah. Well, that's we. That's what some people have said, and I'm happy with that because, like, it, it has to be something. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys. Yes. It's Yorshka. <laughs> Was it this this beautiful this beautiful other timeline where she's dead? <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn! I, I was I was gonna say like, is there a third Yorshka? <laughs> yep, <laughs> there we go. It's like you know those books where it's like um, find all the mistakes in the drawing. Yeah. yeah. You think that's basically what Dark Souls 3 is? <laughs> yeah, but this is like, find all the Yorshkas in the drawing. No, like, find Waldo! Find Yorshka! <laughs> and then I, I just imagine, like, Lance is gonna find cut content that in every level, in every single game, has, like, a <laughs> Yorshka in it. There was a Yorshka in Demon's Souls. 
<laughs> it's like the uh, the Kadama in in Neo. You have to find all the hidden Yorshkas in every area, and they give you different benefits. <laughs> so They'll give you some ears. <sighs> you chose to spend an entire weekend farming for ears, Richie. Yeah. That was your choice. Yeah. So don't take it out on Yorshka. <laughs> don't take it out on Yorshka. <laughs> you know Allison's D&D character is called Yorshka. Oh my god, really? In a tribute to this podcast, yeah. Yo, that's so cool. It's Yorm plus Yorshka. Yormshka. They're a power couple. The best character. <laughs> Wasn't that podcast like two or three hours long or something? It felt like it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many great uh, Patreon goals that you add without telling me, and then send me a screenshot of when we reach it. <laughs> <sighs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have brought up the snake doll. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, no, you ke- ke- tell us about the snake doll, Cal. Yeah. Um, well, I, like, I just think it might be, like, a mummified pygmy that was placed inside the doll, similar to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, because the, the tail has, like, wood blocks in it. Yeah. So, like, I, like, it's that, or, like, I was thinking maybe because it's a snake thing, like, she just shed her skin, and they just stuffed the skin, and it's not actually, she's not actually dead, technically. I don't know, though. Yeah, we can see a face through the, it's the too mask or whatever. Small to be Priscilla unless Priscilla shrank. No well maybe <laughs> they put like half the body. Well and Priscilla is yeah. gone. Like her arena's there and it's empty. Yeah, but she could have well oh my god, well, so she could have put on some military uniform and went grocery shopping, Richie. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Well that that makes sense. I need to draw that now. but yeah um the snake doll was the last thing on my notes so like unless you guys want to add anything else um that's like pretty much all i have to say i think we need to figure out what the snake doll is what right now right now let's go (sighs) we have cal here we have richie did did i tell you when i looked it up what? Because in the art book, everything is, um, like, captioned. Yeah. Okay, so tell us what it is. Well, I, I it's captioned in Japanese, and I spent a really long time, like, copying it out by hand to translate it. It's called... You know what you could have done? You could have taken a picture and sent it to Mai? Yeah, this is, like, before I knew Mai. Oh. Do you want to know what it's called? Is Is it called... I don't know. I have nothing. What is it called? Detail in Frida's room. (laughs) Uh (laughs) That's cool. It could just be a piece of decor. Yeah. It's just very badly placed. Like, immediately after the bonfire, you see it there, and it, like, misleads the players into thinking that it's something significant. But apparently it's not. Yeah, like most of Dark Souls 3. <laughs> oh, no, actually, 
Kenichi, Cal. Yes. It makes sense. Okay, because when Frida came over, she really admired Priscilla, and then Priscilla passed away or whatever. So Frida's like, I'd like a little piece of Priscilla in my room. And so she took some of Priscilla's tail skin yeah. and made this beautiful doll out of it. So she pulled a German, basically. There we go, yeah! Yeah! Because Marie is basically Frida, and then Frida is basically German, and the snake is basically the doll. It all makes sense. (gasps) Oh! I just found the concept art of the doll, and it's a different color. Which doll? The the doll in um, uh, Frida's room. Hang on. This Ooh. is the drawing of it. This does actually kind of make it look like Priscilla. Because the the fuzzy coat thing is white. Oh. Yes, that's what I've been telling you. It's literally Priscilla's fur coat and her tail skin. And the thing behind it is not really a face. It's like a wooden carve out of Priscilla. I guess that sort of makes sense. Like, it's one of those ideas that they had, but, like, decided not to push through with it. But they still had the assets for it and, like, kept it anyway. Let me ask you, though, is this official art, or is it FromSoft stealing Cal's art again and passing it off as their own? Well, only Cal can tell us. Hang on. No, no, um, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is actual art, because, like, I'm looking at my copy of the art book right now, and it's the same thing. This is the, the face gets a separate image as well. Hmm. So it is Priscilla, and I was right all along. I'm just checking out Priscilla, because, like, I don't... Priscilla yeah, she has, has like, similar hair. She has white yeah. hair, no, but she, and she's but she, like... has, she has, like, horns. On her face, though, these, like, scaly things. This is a representation of Priscilla. It's not literal Priscilla. <laughs> it's modern art Priscilla. If you had watched Toys That Made Us, like I asked you, you'd understand this. Like, Hello Kitty, for example, has a mouth, but you don't literally draw a mouth on her because it's, like, a, a representation or whatever. Yeah, but she has a quite, like, um, prominent, prominent, like, scaly, horny thing on her forehead. Like you think they would include that? You, I feel like you, Cal. Do you see what I mean when I'm like Richard doesn't pay attention to what I'm saying? I understand. I'll, I'll show you that. Hang on. Also, since 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 Sin brought up Hello Kitty. That little skeleton. Okay, so first of all, it's not that prominent. It's like four of them sticking out or whatever. Yeah, but they're still still there. Okay, well, 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 if fashion changes at Ariandel, you could just scale them down, you know? Like, it's not fashionable to have them anymore, so you just, like, like nails, you know? Like, manicure, whatever. And then they grow back again. I don't know. It's not as prominent as you describe it. Speaking of prominent, if you Google Priscilla, one of the suggested is um, Dark Souls Priscilla Fat, which is apparently a thing. (laughs) I clicked on it. There's like several pages of just like 
fat versions of Priscilla. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that is so cute! I don't, I don't know why specifically this is a thing. Well, I found weird art of Sage Freak earlier, so I guess I'm not too surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why her specifically. Well, maybe maybe it's everyone. Maybe you just stumbled upon Priscilla. It's a Dark Souls fat. This looks like Masami Obari art. <laughs> What's that? That's too well proportioned. <laughs> um. What's that? What is it that you mentioned? What does that mean? That was the guy who did the designs for Dengayo. Oh. Remember and there was that that horrible image I sent you of the woman <laughs> like torso was 80% boobs and they were held on with like dental floss and her spine is twisted at this really weird angle. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember? Yeah, I've seen hmm. that movie. It's a voltage fighter Gaokaiser. All the all the fat. Okay, I've looked up Dark Souls fat characters. All it does is give me Smo and uh, Sig uh, Sigmaya. Oh. Neither of whom are canonically fat. Uh, Smo Smo is a really buff guy who wears a fat suit. And oh no, Sig Sigmaya does say he's a little too plump these days, so he may be. That is mostly his armor, though. Hmm. Hmm. I'm just thinking back to the start of the co- of the recording when I said this shouldn't take more than 20 minutes long. No. <laughs> okay, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. I typed Dark Souls Fat. Related uh, searches. Dark Souls Fat Guinevere, Dark Souls Fat Priscilla. Oh, Dark Souls Fat Guinevere. Okay. Also suggest Dark Souls Thick Priscilla. <laughs> oh! <laughs> uh, fat Guinevere just seems to be regular Guinevere. Patreon.com slash Sinclair Lore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Richard, do an appropriate outro. Thank you very much, Cal, for talking to us about Sky Burial. Uh, you are an artist. Where can people find your art? Oh, um, uh, I think I mentioned this in like the last podcast I was on, but you can just find me on ArtStation um, slash Cal Santiago. A-R-T-S-T-A-T-I-O-N dot com slash C-A-L-S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O Thank you. Thank you. I just found you in a What? I just found you in a as well. You found your nipple as well? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's apparently a mod called Seductive Guinevere. Oh! Which, from what I gathered, like just just removes part of, of her dress. Doesn't even have a description. <laughs> hang on, description. Oh, hang on, there is one. Uh, about this mod, hurrah for amazing chest. Uh, improving normal and specular maps of Guinevere for more realistic boobs! Exclamation mark. I also edited the transparent cloth over the breast to feel more like chiffon than the straps. And then there's just an animated gif of of her chest heaving. Oh my god! I mean, you, you've got the gif, you don't really need the mod, I guess. 
You may also like the seductive Quaylag mod. <laughs> oh, I can't view it because it's adult content only. I don't have an account at Nexus Mods. mentioned Guinevere's nipple Rich stayed quiet as if judging but actually he went on to google all about it I just wanted to see like what what sexy mods people have made for Dark Souls <laughs> Rich is installing them as we speak yes <laughs> so that was a podcast about Sky Burial <laughs> 